as we come to the Word of God this morning, I ask you to please bow with me in prayer as we ask the Lord's help on this time. Oh God, we do cry out to you and we thank you that you are the one that knows every care and burden upon our hearts in this room this morning. Lord, you intimately are acquainted with all our ways. There's nothing that passes your sight. And so we thank you that you, you care for us. That you don't just know our problems, but you have sought to come alongside us, that you are our refuge and help in time of trouble. And Lord, as we come now to your word, as we look into the wonderful truths of salvation, I ask that you would please illumine our minds. Help us to see, just in a small way, the greatness of what you have done for us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you uh, may have noticed just living in America in the 21st century, but Eastern religions are on the rise in the West. They are making inroads into Western societies, and you can see this all over the place. You can see it in the seeming ubiquity of yoga that just Several decades ago, you wouldn't have heard about it at all or on the fringe of American society, and now it's into schools and workplaces all over the place. Or if you hear, go, tap into any uh, self-help part of a bookstore or online world, you're going to hear self-help gurus that will constantly talk about uh, mindfulness or meditation, pulling in practices from religions from more the eastern part of the world, such as Buddhism or Hinduism, New Age, spirituality, Taoism, or astrology. These other religions are making inroads and are becoming popular in particularly some of their practices. These different religions teach some form of pantheism or panentheism. These views see God as all things, they equate the, the, the physical world with God, or that God's spirit is inhabiting all things in this world. And Americans, whether thinking about it or not, are increasingly imbibing this sort of mentality, believing that we can be one with the supreme being, that we can merge ourselves with God. And so our mission in life is to become one with all things. Now last week, here we began a mini-series on union with Christ. And we saw how the Bible describes our salvation in terms of being united to Jesus. And it'd be right to ask the question, is this the same thing as what is taught in these Eastern religions? This being one with the supreme being, is it the same thing as being one with Christ? Are they basically labels, different labels, talking about the same thing? Well, it is true that the Bible teaches oneness with Christ, but it is different than the oneness that is taught in pantheism. We are united to Jesus Christ, the God-man. He is the mediator that stands between God and man. And he alone, 
fits the bill to be that mediator. And so when we are united to Christ, who is that middleman, that mediator, we do not merge ourselves with the divine essence. We do not lose our individuality in God. We do not become gods. We are united to Christ and through that have communion with the triune God. As a couple authors put it, they put it this way, they said, it is not with union, it is not union with a nebulous spirit, but a relationship with the historical Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose physically from the dead. We're not talking about a mystical or spiritual merging with some divine spirit. We're talking about union with the historical person, Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ is an amazing reality that is greater than what is offered in any other religion. We have the privilege of being united with the Son of God and thus have access to the Father and the power of the Spirit. Through our union with Christ, we have communion with God even though on our own we don't deserve to have that communion. We deserve God's unbridled wrath for our sin and instead, because we're united to Jesus, we get eternal, joyful communion with him. Hallelujah, what a savior that we can participate in that. Now last week we introduced this topic by looking at how being united to Christ changes our identity. We go from being a slave to a son. A slave to sin, to being a child of God. We must surrender all that we are. We let go of who we are by ourselves and we embrace Christ and we gain a full access to the table. This week we're going to look further at our union with Christ, particularly as it relates to our salvation. It's union with Christ that makes your salvation possible. And so this morning, I want to show you three arenas where your union with Christ features prominently in your salvation. It features prominently in your salvation. And the reason for this is so you might be in awe at all that God has done for you in Christ. We sometimes write off the fact that we're saved or that, that God has saved us and we move on and yet we don't sit to contemplate all that has been accomplished for us. I pray that this morning as we look at these three arenas of our union with Christ, it would help you to be in awe all the more for what God has done. And so the first arena I want us to look at this morning of where union with Christ features prominently in your salvation is number one, in the Father's choice of you. In the Father's choice of you. Our union with Christ did not begin in one sense when we became Christians, but rather began in eternity past. And we saw this last week. I want you to turn back there to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. The great letter of Ephesians that Paul wrote in which he begins describing all of the spiritual blessings that Christians have in Christ. Paul begins with a word of praise, looking to extol the Lord, and it prompts him to spill out what in the Greek is one long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. 
as he just continues to attach one blessing of salvation upon another, reminds him of something else, and he just keeps going. But look particularly at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Once again, we see here that in this passage, Paul begins by praising God that it's in Christ that we have received every spiritual blessing. Believer, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because you are in Christ, because you are united to him. And the first one that he begins with, he rewinds the clock to eternity past and begins in verse 4 talking about God's election or selection of us in Jesus. The first spiritual blessing is that we have been chosen in Christ. Now notice who does the choosing. Who's the actor here? Verse 4, as he chose us in him. As the Father, who he's praising, chose us believers in him, Christ. It's God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is doing this choosing. He, as the Father, has the special role of selecting and choosing who would be saved. He has designated those who would receive salvation. Salvation is according to his plan and is instigated from his will. In this first chapter, we see this reality of God's plan uh, laced throughout this whole passage. And we see the language of predestination in here in verse, uh, in verse 5, verse 11, language of God's good pleasure in verses 5 and 9, the language of God's will in verse 5, 9, and 11, language of of his mystery, verse 9, of his purpose, verse 9, of his appointment, verse 11, of his plan, verse 11. This is all according to God's predetermined plan. This is his story that he's writing. Salvation truly belongs to the Lord. Now notice the time frame, verse 4, that this election took place. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1-1, before time began, God chose those whom he would save. And the implication of this is important. The implication is that the selection of some people for salvation is based entirely upon God's gracious purpose. It was not based upon any circumstances that took place in time that then prompted God's selection. It was not based upon any sort of human merit that then caused him to select these people for salvation. No, because there weren't any people created at this time. This is before all of that. Only God's sovereign grace can explain the reason that you are a believer, friend. Only because of his grace. What was God's goal in selecting you for salvation? What does verse 4 say? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
I love this. He, he rewinds the clock to eternity past and says, we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him, which we now know in the great span of salvation history, when is it that we're going to stand before him holy and blameless? On that last day. Eternity past to the end of this age. It's spanned right here. He chose us back then so that in the future we would stand blameless and holy before him. God desires that his people would not just be saved from the consequences of their sin and brought to some sort of neutral position, righteousness zero, but that they would be actually have a positive righteousness, that they would be holy and blameless, a perfect track record in his name. And this should humble us, that God would choose for us to be holy and blameless before him. Author P.T. O'Brien wrote this. He says, again, we see that God's election arose entirely from his grace. For if his intention was that we should be holy and blameless in his sight, then when he chose us, we must have been unholy and blameworthy and therefore deserving of judgment rather than adoption. He chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless meaning we weren't that condition without him choosing us. And so God's election of us unto salvation is results in us being in Christ. Authors MacArthur and Mayhew remind us that there was, quote, never a time when God contemplated his elect apart from their vital union to Christ. As God thought about us as his people, he never thought of us apart from our union to Jesus. And yet, because this aspect of our union, the Father's choice of us, takes place before our birth, it in and of itself has no transforming effect upon us. In other words, it takes other events in life for us to be transformed as a result of that choice that took place in eternity past. In other words, if in some hypothetical sense, if God's election for salvation stopped there and there weren't further actions on God's part, we would never experience the benefits of that election. Authors Beaky and Smalley give us a helpful reminder here. They say, neither does being chosen in eternity past imply a righteous status for the elect before their conversion. For all unbelievers are under the wrath of God for their sins. The elect are in Christ at this stage only with respect to the plan, decree, and purpose of God. However, this covenantal union is the foundation of all other aspects of union with Christ, for in them, God executes his eternal decree. So even though we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, you and I, before we believed, were in a state of condemnation, a state of God's wrath. Something else needed to happen. But as before we look at those other things, we, we just notice here in this verse, we see that God the Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before you were even born, you were selected unto salvation. And this truth of our union with Christ should elicit two responses. The first is assurance. Assurance. Believer, you can be assured this morning knowing that you are secure in Christ eternally. Nothing you did affected God's choice of you for salvation. 
Nothing you did affected God's decision to unite you to Christ. And there's nothing you can do to end that union. God, of his own free will and grace, chose to unite you to Jesus. And it's by his own gracious purpose that you remain so. The second response that this should elicit from us is adoration. When we realize that there was nothing that we did to contribute to our salvation, that, that it was planned out before we were even born, that God had purpose to save us, this should humble us, this should cause our hearts to explode with gratitude and praise to him. This is, this is love unmatched. This is amazing grace. Something that we didn't deserve, something we didn't earn. It's all of his grace. We cannot turn away from this verse without seeing the heart of the Father for you. This is not something he did on his off day and, and, and just tossed aside and moved on with other things. But God, from his heart of love and grace, purposed to set aside people for himself. And that should cause our hearts to rejoice. So the first arena where our union with Christ is seen and it features in our salvation is in the Father's choice of us. But there's a second arena we need to look at, and that is in Christ's work for you. First was the Father's choice of you. Secondly, it's in Christ's work for you that we see union with Christ. First, we'll see his in his incarnation. His incarnation. And so we go now from eternity past to the first century A.D., it was in those early decades of that century that the Son of God came to earth and took on human flesh. You're no doubt familiar with John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He walked and lived among humanity. He entered our world as a human. He was truly human. This is what we call the incarnation. He took on our humanness except without sin. And it's vitally important that we recognize that his flesh and blood, his body was the same as the bodies that you and I carry today. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. One of the implications of this, friends, is that when Jesus took on our flesh and blood, our bodies, vessels, bones, that it affirms that God's creation of our bodies and that we experience today is good. The matter itself, our bodies, physical flesh, are not inherently bad, evil, or sinful. Yes, they are tainted by sin, but they still hold a, a mark of the image of God. Now, but while Christ's incarnation here gives him a common nature with all humanity, every single person shares that with Jesus, that he took on human nature, there's something special in that he took on flesh and blood for a specific purpose. It wasn't just for identification. It was for salvation. It was for redemption. He took on flesh and blood to identify with his people and to accomplish redemption for his people. 
Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He, he did this, gave himself up to purify for himself a people. There's a specific group of people that he gave himself up for. And so in order for, for us to be united to Jesus, in order for you to be united to Christ and to be saved, Jesus had to come to earth and take on flesh and blood. He had to identify with you. Jesus, in his incarnation, paved the way for union with him to be possible. Robert Lethem states this, he says, the incarnation is the indispensable basis for our union with Christ. Since Christ has united himself to us in the incarnation, we can be united to him by the Holy Spirit. We needed Jesus to take on bodies like us in order for us to be united to him. But taking on human flesh, identifying with us is not the only thing that he did. He, so we have his incarnation in his work for us, but that led then to secondly, his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection. This is the redemptive work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. As we saw, he came to this earth to die. He gave himself as a sacrifice upon the cross. He came to his own and his own received him not, John 1 says. What did they do to him? They nailed him to a cross outside Jerusalem. And when he died, did he die for his own sins? No, for he had none. He was sinless. But he died for sins of his people. He was sinless, and yet Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. And this statement is foundational to the gospel. If you ask a child, what did Jesus do for us? They're probably going to answer, he died for our sins. And that is the core encapsulation. If you, if you whittle it all down, that is what Jesus did. He died for our sins. And that's great. That is the truth that we cling to. But have you ever thought, how is it that that could be possible? How is it that an innocent man could somehow be nailed to a tree, slaughtered and murdered, and somehow that counts to you? How is it that one person can pay for the sins of another, but not just for one other, but the sins of many others? And the answer is union with Christ. We have been united with him so that we are treated as one. What happens to Christ happens to us. Therefore, Paul says, we have died with Christ. Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. How can he say that? Because he's been united to him. 2 Timothy 2.11 says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. The assumption is we did die with him. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We see more of this language of us being united to Jesus in his redemptive work. Friends, these truths are what draws Christ close to us. Jesus was not some distant man who accomplished something on a cross on a hill long ago far away. And there's not this gulf between us and him. The New Testament paints a much more intimate picture. 
that you and I were united to him even through those works of redemption that Jesus accomplished. Romans chapter six, let's look at verses three through five. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see the union with Jesus in these, the works that Christ accomplished? We've been baptized into Christ Jesus into a death like his. We've been united with him in a death like his. And just as Christ was raised, so too we are raised and we walk in newness of life now and we'll one day be resurrected just like Christ was resurrected. Death, burial, resurrection. We were united with Jesus all the way through. We saw this last week in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is making this emphasis over and over again that through the works of redemption that Jesus did, we were united with him by faith through the Spirit. And so when Christ died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. This means that by faith in Christ, me, the old man, Micah, has died. It's no longer me anymore. I was buried. But now I've been raised to new life because I'm in Christ. I have new life in me. I am a new creation in Christ. And this is what it means for every believer. We're a new person because of our union to Jesus. It's through this union, as we were merged with him, that Christ took our sin. And we were able to gain his righteousness righteousness that he accomplished by living perfectly upon this earth and, and actively obeyed the law. He had a perfect record of obedience. That perfect record, friend, is credited to us by union with Christ. Our unrighteousness to him, his righteousness to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in Christ we become the righteousness of God. Now this concept might be a bit strange, this idea of being united to someone in this way. And so I found helpful an analogy given by author Rory Shiner in his book, One Forever, The Transforming Power of Being in Christ. He gives this analogy. He says, imagine that you are at the airport waiting to get on a plane to New York. So picture yourself at LAX, you're waiting to get on an airplane and fly to New York. You're sitting there looking out the window, looking at the airplane. And the question, kind of a strange one, but for the sake of analogy, try to track with me here. What is the relationship you need to have with the airplane in order to get to New York? Would it help, for example, to be under the plane? to submit yourself to the plane's eminent authority in the whole flying to New York thing? No, that, that wouldn't help. Would it help to be inspired by the airplane? You go to the airport, you watch it take off, and you whisper to yourself, one day, one day I'm going to do that too. 
No. How about following the airplane? You know the plane is going to New York, and so it stands to reason that you take note of the direction it goes, and you pursue it as fast as your little legs will carry you until you end up in New York. No, these, we all know the answer to this. Of course, the key relationship you need to have with the airplane in order to get to New York is not to be under, behind, or inspired by it. You need to be in it. Why? Because being in the plane, by being in the plane, whatever happens to the plane happens to you. The question, did you get to New York, will be a part of a larger question, did the plane get to New York? And if the plane got to New York, then yes, you did get to New York. Because what happens to the plane happens to you. And so the author Shiner concludes with this. He says, at its heart, the New Testament idea of being in Christ is something like that. What the New Testament is saying is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we become united to him and we are in him so that whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. Therefore, when Jesus died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose again, we rose again. And when he ascended to heaven, we were seated with him in the heavenly places as well, Paul says. Friends, this has significant implications for your own salvation. As I said last week, this is not just the idea of some nice-hearted man, some far away, canceling your astronomical debt. But rather, it's much more personal and intimate than that. Jesus came down and took on flesh and blood like you. Came to identify with you, with your lowest state, and he united your, himself to your human form. So you, he could stand in your place as he accomplished your redemption. No other religion has a salvation like this. Other religions might have a list of things for you to do, to accomplish or to achieve perfection, achieve salvation, to please the deity. But it's only in orthodox, historical, biblical Christianity does God unite himself with his creatures in order to redeem them. Truly, this is amazing grace. This is love divine. Friends, we have, as we said last week, we have a new identity. We are in Christ. We're now seated in the heavenlies. Our identity marker is primarily that we are in Jesus. That hasn't changed. And so because we're crucified with Christ, it means, as I said, the old man has died, which means the agenda for your life is not set by you because you died. And your agenda for your life died. You being the controlling center of your life, you being Lord of your life, died. It was crucified with Christ. The old self is dead. But you now are a new creature in Christ. You're one with him. He is now Lord of your life. And now he sets the agenda for your life. Now his agenda is the controlling, dominating force by, what, by which you live. When you realize that you are in Christ, not just that you receive the little bonus check from Jesus on what he did on the cross, but that you are eternally united to him, it changes how you live your every day. So we need to see that in our salvation, the Father chose us. We see that in our union with Christ, the, the Son worked redemption for us. 
And let's look now at the third and final arena of our union with Christ. And that is our union with Christ is seen in the Spirit's application to you. The Spirit's application. Now it's a little bit vague, but application is referring to the application of all of these benefits of salvation. The theologian John Calvin wrote this in his Institutes. He says, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. It does us no good if we are separated from Jesus. We've got to be inextricably linked and united to him by the Spirit. And all that Christ accomplished, all of that great salvation stuff would remain outside of us if it wasn't for the Spirit. The Spirit applies what the Son accomplished. The death and resurrection of Christ is meaningless to you unless you are united to Christ by the Spirit. And here we have the triune God, all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, at work in this great work of redemption to get us saved. And here you thought it was just a simple little decision and you move on and that's it, right? No, all three persons of the Godhead are all at work to see that we receive all of these benefits. To, to illustrate this idea of the fact that Christ's work is meaningless to us unless the Spirit apply it, applies it, consider uh, the possibility that you were, you've entered a sweepstakes for an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe. You've put your name on the paper, you filled out the form online, and, uh, and you're, you're entered into the sweepstakes. But let's say, as the time came, they drew your name from the hat. You were selected. You are the winner to win this full all-expenses-paid trip to Europe. Now consider the fact that this win and all that the benefits that come with it mean nothing to you unless someone contacts you to inform you that you've won and transfers those benefits to your name. So that the ticket, the plane tickets are in your name, the hotel reservations are in your name. The win is useless unless it's applied to you. In the same way, without the Spirit bringing the benefits of Christ's redemptive work home to your soul, you will not gain from what has already objectively happened, happened, namely the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes, that took place in history, but it's going to remain there unless the Spirit does something. So what happens when the Spirit unites us to Christ? He gives the elect, remember the one who was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, he's given a new life, what we call regeneration. We are regenerated, we are born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. One Puritan described it this way, he says, by a true and real union, but which is only passive on their part, the elect are united to Christ when his spirit first takes possession of them and infuses into them a principle of new life. The beginning of which life can be from nothing else but from union with the spirit of Christ. 
Christ takes possession of us, infuses us with his spirit, and then we have this new life. We are regenerated. As we read already in Ephesians chapter 2, we were made alive together with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Titus chapter 3 verse 5, Paul says that we were saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit grabs hold of the person, washes him clean, and gives him new life, applying the life of Christ to him. Now this work of Christ is monergistic, not synergistic. In other words, as the Puritan says, they're rather passive on our part. For when salvation begins in our heart, it is God that gets a hold of us. And he does the work to awaken us. Because remember, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead person can't help himself get awake. He needs new life to be infused into him from the outside. And that's what God does through the Spirit. The Spirit does the regenerating. Dead sinners contribute nothing to their awakening. Now, once an elect person has been made alive and cleansed by the Spirit, he's given faith and he immediately believes in Christ. As Beaky and Jones state, faith is only possible because Christ, through the Spirit, has joined himself to the sinner. In response, the sinner then exercises faith toward Christ and as an effect of regeneration. With the union complete... The sinner receives from Christ everything that Christ merited, including justification, adoption, and sanctification. The Spirit grabs a hold of us, regenerates us. We now, with new life, are able to look to Christ and no longer uh, reject Him, but now accept Him and believe in Him. And so, in our experience, friends, as you and I believed in Christ at our conversion, that is what happened. Our hearts were regenerated, and then we had new life to be able to believe. And we did. And we trusted in Christ. And as we did that, we were united to him. The union was complete. And then all the benefits of salvation came flooding to us. And so what does this mean for us and our salvation? We're getting down here into the biological laboratory of salvation, right? We're picking apart all these different uh, uh, pieces and parts of our salvation. But in this, we see the necessity of union with Christ. You see, when you were converted, by the time you placed your faith in Christ, the Spirit was already doing work in your heart. He was already get, had given you new life. And so when you first believed, the union with you and Christ was made complete. And then instantly, the blessings of Christ came flooding to you. You were instantly justified. Justification is a declaration by God to us that we are now righteous in Christ, counted righteous in Christ. It's a legal declaration. Because you see, you and I have sins stacked against us. There's a record of debt that we owe to God because of our sin. And yet in justification, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. That record of debt and that sin is wiped away. And now we are declared righteous in Christ. His record is ours. As we saw last week, we were also adopted. Justified, our record was dealt with. We're legally declared righteous in Christ. But then we're also adopted into the family of God. 
We now have a new status and a new identity. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer uh, one with Adam, but we're now one with Christ. We have a new family. And now being a son and daughter of God, our future is secured. What is guaranteed to those who are sons? What is guaranteed to those who are true heirs? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, we, because we are enwrapped, enveloped in Christ, we do not experience the wrath of God. We will never experience the wrath and condemnation of God because we are safe in him. That is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On top of this, there's a kingdom inheritance. The New Testament talks about inheritance for the people of God that is guaranteed for you. It's kept in heaven for us. And we will receive it because we've been sealed with the, the Spirit. The Spirit is a guarantee. It's a down payment upon that future inheritance. All because we've been united to Christ. And when that end comes, when that final day is here and Christ returns, we will be resurrected as Christ was. As we read earlier in Romans 6 verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, resurrection to life is in your future if you are in Christ. These truths, friends, we, in one sense, the New Testament expounds over and over again. And in one sense, we, can, we spend all of our lives seeking to plumb the depths of the richness of our salvation but just the survey we've looked at this morning should once again lead us to both assurance and adoration. Assurance and adoration. Believer, you can see that your salvation was accomplished objectively on the cross 2,000 years ago. That happened. That was a historical objective fact. But then subjectively in your life, the Spirit applied these benefits from Christ when you were converted, when you first believed. The Spirit doesn't mess up that application. The Spirit uh, didn't uh, have a glitch in his download of those things. There wasn't like a partial application of those benefits. No, when, when, a, when a sinner repents and believes in Christ and he infuses new life and he gives all these benefits, it is full and is complete. You don't have just half of the spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have them all. And once we're united to Christ, this process can't be reversed. It can't be reversed. Because there's a melding together that takes place. Yesterday I was working on my sprinkler system and I was rescued by a dear brother in our congregation to actually make it work. Um, but when you're, as I found out and had to uh, fix, that when you're merging PVC joints together, it's not just glue that can be broken, it is actually a chemical reaction that melds those two plastics together and cannot be reversed, no matter how big you mess up the job. 
The same is true with our union with Christ, friends. There's something that has taken place in when we've been united to Jesus that you can't just rip that apart. This is one of the main reasons why I believe it's impossible, absolutely impossible for a true believer in Christ to lose their salvation. If it's, it's true that people do walk away from the faith. There are people that once said they believed and now they no longer do. What I believe the New Testament teaches is that that shows that they never believed in the first place. There might, they may have gotten close, they may have sounded like a believer, but they never truly believed. In other words, all that we've been talking about this morning, this union with Christ, never took place. Because you see, for someone to legitimately lose their salvation, in order to teach that, that means what you're saying is that someone would have to be unadopted, they have to be unjustified, their record of sin transferred back to them, their righteousness gone back to Christ, it means they'd have to be unsanctified, not set apart to the Lord, and said set back with Adam and with the world. They'd have to be unjoined from Christ. They'd have to be unelected by God in eternity past. These things will never happen, can never happen, and that is why a believer's salvation is eternally secure in Christ. Friends, we cannot undo what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit has done. The security of our salvation rests on the work of God. It does not rest on our faith. It does not, work, it does not rest on how hard and how strong we hold on to Christ. You say, yeah, but my faith is weak and my sins are many. Thankfully, our salvation doesn't depend on us. And to illustrate this, let's go back to the airplane analogy for a moment. Again, Shriner, uh, Shiner in his book, One Forever, develops this. He says, imagine two passengers boarding the plane to New York, among the others that are there, but imagine two. First is a businesswoman who flies from L.A. to New York every month to meet for board meetings. She gets to the airport with 20 minutes to spare, goes straight through the lounge to recaffeinate, grabs a copy of the Wall Street Journal before boarding. When boarded... She barely lifts her eyes from the paper as the hostess tells the passengers what to do in the case of a, let's just say, a non-traditional landing. She could probably recite the very speech by heart. So that's on one side. We have this businesswoman who, boop, boop, sits down, boom, and she's good. Second passenger, an old man who's getting on the, passenger, getting on the plane for the first time. He's fulfilling a life Long dream, his family pulling together resources of him seeing America's largest city and he's finally getting to go to New York. He's arrived at the airport two hours early. He studies the plane from the viewing deck, marveling at the thought of this massive, massive machine made of iron could ever take to the skies. When boarded, he not only listens to the safety instructions, but he also takes notes, which he will review at regular intervals throughout the flight. As the plane takes off, his palms become clammy, his heart doubles its activity, preparing his nervous body for a fight or quite literally flight response. Throughout the whole trip, he is full of wonder and fear, and at several points, he presses the buzzer to ask the hostess, are you sure everything's going to be okay? Now, two questions to ask from this analogy. Who, number one, who has more faith? The woman has more faith. 
She's a model of total trust in the plane and in its pilots. The old man, on the other hand, is full of doubt. He's constantly questioning whether this plane will get there. But the second question, who makes it to New York? Answer both of them. Why? Because the strong faith of the woman or the doubting faith of the man has very little to do with it. It has everything to do with the plane. At this point, the question is not who believes more, but where are you located? If you are in the plane, then the amount of faith you have in the plane has nothing to do with whether or not you make it to New York. Being in Christ has a similar reality. The heart of the matter is not how much faith you have, but where your faith is located. The author Shiner helpfully makes his point when he says this. He says, one of the many wonderful things of being in Christ does is give us a knowledge of salvation that takes our eyes off ourselves and puts them on him. When we understand that the foundation of our salvation is to be found in him, then we know that it's not faith in the abstract or the amount of faith that will save us, but it is the one in whom we have our faith. We are saved in him. Believer, allow this truth to arrest your heart and may it prompt you to praise Father, Son, and Spirit for all that he has done for us. That he has saved you, not because of any work that you have done, but simply because of his grace. The fact that you have believed is because of his mercy. And the fact that you still believe today is not because you've kept yourself in the faith, but because he's kept you. He's hung on to you. He's, he will not let you go. It's the strength of Christ that we rest in, not in our strength. Friends, our union with Christ is irreversible, and that should give us great assurance and also great adoration to the God who has done it all. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we indeed praise your name for all that you have done for us. We are humbled when we think about the salvation that has been brought to us, that we on our own were sinners destined for hell, destined for wrath, and yet you in your grace chose us to receive the benefits of salvation. Oh, Father, I ask this morning that you would cause this truth of our union with Christ to assure the hearts of your people this morning, to remind them that they are secure in him because of your work. And Father, may you prompt our hearts to praise you with greater vigor and fervor and adoration because of all that you have accomplished. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.